Time for Seafood News. You're listening to the Seafood News Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Foreign Trade Data. Reduce uncertainty, minimize risk, and uncover opportunities with the only website designed exclusively for the seafood import and export community. I'm News Assistant Ryan Doyle. And I'm Erner Barry Seafood Market Reporter Lauren Castiglione. Thanks for joining us. In our top story of the day, fisheries managers were focused on bycatch during meetings in Homer, Alaska last week. Seafood News reported that sablefish bycatch overage in the Bering Sea is more than triple the allocation. By the end of August, the allowable trawl sablefish bycatch sat over 2,200 metric tons, over three times the allocation of 633 metric tons. The overage could close all fisheries that take sablefish for the rest of the year. Reaction from the directed fishery was swift and urgent. Four letters to the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council will be responded to at its meetings in Homer. Halibut bycatch is also on the agenda. In recent years, Bering Sea fleets have caught more halibut as bycatch than boats that fish for the halibut commercially. The North Pacific Council will be tasked with finding a solution to ensure bycatch limits will protect halibut-dependent communities in Alaska and also ensure groundfish operations are not heavily impacted. SeafoodNews.com received multiple editorials this week discussing halibut bycatch. A fisherman for over three decades and a member of the advisory panel of the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council, Jeff Kaufman highlighted how the council will be assessing the model and analysis and determine solutions that are most viable to provide for the halibut fishery and also not constraining the groundfish fisheries, calling their action a glimmer of hope for his community. Clem Tillian, an Alaskan resident and former commissioner on the North Pacific Fur Seal Commission, gave his thoughts on why halibut bycatch limits must drop to protect Bering Sea communities. You can check their full pieces at seafoodnews.com. Meanwhile, the Canadian Liberal Party released its full campaign platform and received significant pushback from the country's aquaculture industry due to its stance on current industry practices. In its platform, the Liberal Party announced its plan to transition all open-net pen salmon farms on the country's west coast to close containment systems by 2025. According to CBC, Karen Ludwig, a Liberal candidate running for re-election in the province, criticized the stance her party took. Ludwig said, quote, when we look at where science is at, I don't believe from what I've researched and heard that science is at the stage where we can quickly make a transition to close containment, end quote. The Canadian Aquaculture Alliance also shunned the Liberal Party's commitment. The alliance highlighted that seafood farming in the country employs 26,000 people and generates $5.4 billion to the economy. After criticism from various leaders in the aquaculture industry, Newfoundland and Labrador Fisheries Minister Jerry Byrne told companies to come east, urging the Liberal Party to tell the country that its aquaculture practices are sound and will continue. Despite the backlash from the industry, Canadian Fisheries Minister Jonathan Wilkinson has faith in the platform, citing how the transition can ensure the health of wild salmon stocks in the country. Wilkinson also showed confidence in the ability of the West Coast fish farms to transition to the closed systems. As we move back to the States, Chris Oliver, Assistant Administrator for NOAA Fisheries, responded to the Maine Lobstermen's Association's concerns with the April 2019 Take Reduction Team Agreement. In a detailed letter, Oliver expressed disappointment to MLA's Executive Director Patrice McCarran, and Oliver said he believes that there are practical solutions to ensure the long-term health of the North Atlantic right whale species. NOAA responded to the withdrawal of lobster industry members from the take reduction team. NOAA clarified multiple points that the MLA raised in its announcement to withdraw from the agreement. In its August letter, the MLA cited the lack of data provided will make it difficult to assess proper measures. 
Although NOAA shared all possible data with the take reduction team, it did admit that data limitations are an ongoing challenge. In more lobster news, Cape Bald Packers will build a new lobster processing facility in Capole after the company lost two plants to separate fires back in February. Cape Bald's new 50,000 square foot facility will be up and running by May 2020, so one of the top processors of lobster will be back when spring lobster season kicks off. And in late September, at a Senate committee meeting on commerce, science, and transportation, U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell highlighted the importance of responding to fishery disasters and pushed for reform to the process. Cantwell described the current process as burdensome, resulting in less funding and delays, further impacting fishermen and fishing communities. In particular, Cantwell discussed the 2016 coho salmon fishery disaster, which affected fisheries across the state. The coho disaster affected tribes, commercial fishermen, charter and recreational fishermen, but not all groups received adequate funding from NOAA, Cantwell said. Cantwell also took the opportunity to ask one of the witnesses, Chris Oliver, about NOAA's role in the pebble mine in Alaska. Cantwell spoke about her concern that NOAA chose not to be a cooperating agency with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers as it related to the proposed pebble mine. Oliver responded by saying NOAA's involvement is limited and they are consulting as requested by the Army Corps. Oliver said the agency has to receive the request and actual proposed action from the permitting agency before it can conduct a full consultation of Pebble Mine, and the agency is still waiting. And Lauren, it's about that time again. It's about that time. Can you give us the latest on the tilapia market? I think I need a jingle for all my, we do. Uh, yeah, we, my analysis We'll, we'll have to talk with our people behind the scenes yeah. to get some jingles. Lauren's in. market update. <laughs> Go for it, Sean. <laughs> Replacement costs for tilapia frozen fillets, calculated by dividing the total value of the commodity by its volume, was recorded at $1.62 per pound in July, reported by the USDOC. This is the lowest price per pound since $1.61 was recorded for October 2009. Year-to-date import data shows frozen tilapia fillets fall 6.8% below the same 2018 timeframe, despite fair to moderate demand within the market. July imports totaled 22.2 million pounds, 12.8% higher than the previous month, and 5.5% higher than July 2018. The average weighted price for frozen tilapia fillets is $2.08 per pound. August imports were released on Friday, October 4th, so you will be hearing more insight from me leading into Q4. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. And finally, top tuna companies from across the globe initiated the Global Tuna Alliance. The new coalition is an independent group made up of retailers and supply chain companies with an eye to stomp out illegal fishing. The alliance aims to improve social and environmental conditions and work with governments around the globe to solve the problem. Tuna continues to be one of the most important fisheries in the world. However, two of its major threats are poor management and illegal fishing. Those concerns have raised alarms about the future of the species. IUU tuna fishing in the Pacific is predicted to have a market value of $616.11 million, according to the World Economic Forum. And in a recent study published uh, in Fisheries Research, scientists from the sea around us found a significant increase in global tuna catches, increasing by over 1,000% over the past six decades. In the last few years, 6 million tons of tuna have been caught. Findings from the research showed that tuna fisheries around the globe are operating well over capacity. 
to help fisheries management, lead author Angie Coulter and the rest of her team created the first global data set to estimate tuna catches since the 1950s. The data also includes bycatch, including sharks and other large fish. The researchers compiled their data set by standardizing all public data sets created by regional tuna fisheries management organizations. Combining the data and creating a set reporting criteria, the team was able to create a more complete picture of the tuna catch. Findings displayed that skipjack and yellowfin were the most commonly caught species, with total catches combining to 4 million tons. Most of the tuna comes from the Pacific Ocean, accounting for 67%, with the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean combining for 24% of the catch. And Lauren, before we end, it's yeah. National Seafood Month, so I'm I making it that. I'm making it a goal for our next however many podcasts this month. I have to look back at the calendar. Uh, how many we can catch. We're going to do some fun things for National Seafood <laughs> Month to wrap up the podcast every week. So stay tuned for that. That's, That's our goal. That's awesome. Bring in the scallops, yes. the salmon, the crab legs. I'm all for it. Yes. But that about does it for us this week. Once again, this episode was brought to you by Foreign Trade Data. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. <laughs>